I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to the Midweek Show. This week we're doing the Russian Snowman and the Glenn Thomas story. But before we start those recordings, Tom, you got a few words you want to say? I just want to thank everybody for tuning in this week. And if you like the show, uh, click the like button, share, and subscribe. It really helps us out. All right. Well, without further ado, we'll kick these stories off, and then Tom and I will return for our discussion. The Russian Snowman by Paul Stonehill, Periscope Correspondent. 1998. Sightings of a Bigfoot-like hominid creature have been reported for many years in rugged, isolated areas of Russia. As a consequence, Bigfoot has been studied by numerous Russian scientists and researchers of the paranormal. One of the leading Russian authorities on Bigfoot was Maya Baikova, who passed away in 1996, leaving behind a legacy of serious scientific inquiry into the phenomena. Baikova graduated from the Moscow Agricultural Academy in 1955. For many years, she studied Bigfoot, naming it Relict Hominid, and she authored three books on the elusive creature, A Legend for Adults, He Is Though He Must Not Be, and Not That Frightful Thing. Beginning in 1972, Baikova organized a dozen expeditions to search for traces of animals unknown to science. None of these expeditions enjoyed the support of official bodies. After long years of study, she came to some interesting conclusions. Bigfoot's appearance, described by many eyewitnesses, betrays the creature's earthly origin. It has a traditional constitution, that is, four limbs with five fingers each, one head and one trunk. It looks like a man or a huge ape, its body covered in fur. Bigfoot is nocturnal and moves very fast, and it possesses an unexplained defense mechanism that makes it invisible to humans. No one has ever seen a Bigfoot dwelling, and nobody knows anything about the reasons for this beast's migrations. The most stunning property attributed to Bigfoot is his ability to disappear and appear suddenly, as if dissolving into thin air. This unusual property has led to various, sometimes fantastic, hypotheses of Bigfoot's origin. Some tend to look for its tracks in other dimensions, while others connect its appearance with UFO activity. Baikova believed that there was no basis for these suppositions. However, she carefully pointed out that because we have no access to the object of our inquiry, we cannot supply an adequate scientific explanation of the whole phenomenon. We can only try to piece together Bigfoot's characteristics using the testimonies of as many different witnesses as possible. Bigfoot's fur has been compared to that of a monkey. However, 
Some Bigfootologists disagree, asserting that large apes live only in warm environments. Until recently, scientists believe that apes could only live in places where the air temperature never drops below 14 degrees Celsius and where there are no sharp temperature fluctuations. Yet, it is common knowledge that Bigfoot has been encountered across the globe, from red-hot deserts to areas inside the Arctic Circle. The diversity of nature suggests a few possible explanations. There are several well-known animals that can live in conditions which are seemingly unsuitable for any kind of life. One example is the so-called snow monkey, Macaca speciosa, found in sparsely populated regions of northern Japan. As a rule, Macaque speciosae live in the tropics. Unlike their close relatives, the snow monkeys have light, thick fur. They are larger and live in mountainous terrain where snow covers the ground four months out of the year. The macaques find their food, grass, young sprouts, leaf buds, and tree bark, under the snow. Baikova and her colleagues were very interested in the peculiarities of the snow monkey's fur, the structure of their skin, and their behavior. Scientific studies, such as the ones conducted on polar bear fur at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts, may offer vital clues to the Bigfoot enigma. There are several interesting points of comparison. Despite its whiteness, the fur of the polar bear is capable of converting 90% of the sun's energy it catches into warmth. Bigfoot inhabitants inside the Arctic Circle have fur of the same color. Polar bears convert into warmth almost all of the ultraviolet rays and part of the visible ones, and reflects light evenly throughout the whole visible spectrum, which is why it appears white to people. Experiments showed that when a portion of this fur is placed under the glass of a solar collector, the efficiency of the apparatus increases by 50% and more. Thus, peculiarities of the fur can enhance the survival of a flesh-and-blood creature. Despite such facts, however, some zoologists and Bigfootologists refuse to discuss the very possibility of Bigfoot living inside the Arctic Circle. Maya Baikova coined a term for the phenomenon of Bigfoot's sudden disappearances. The creature camouflages its biofield to become invisible. This phenomenon has been noted in Bigfoot encounters in the Himalayas, although Baikova noted the creature knows no limits and can be encountered on all five continents. Tibetan red-hatted monks say that the Yeti possesses control over its will, or, to be more specific, it can stop the activity of its brain, especially to become invisible. Monks themselves can do this. Indeed, it is a necessary part of their gradual perfection. The red-headed monks believe that Bigfoot, the Yeti, is the only creature on Earth that has preserved the ability to dissolve and become completely invisible to those around it. The monks say that Europeans have often sighted it, observed Bigfoot as a real object, and even followed it. Each time they were left disappointed. Bigfoot disappeared every time, right into thin air. Baikova thinks this is a case of psychological suggestion. It is directed not outward, but inward at itself, as proposed by Professor Porshnev in his 1974 book About Early Human History. Excessive psychic, nervous, or physical strain 
can trigger spontaneous natural auto-training that leads to a lethargic state. This does not produce complete physical disappearance, but invisibility vis-à-vis the observer. Professor Porshnev concluded that humans have lost this and similar abilities as a result of the increasing complexity of the human psyche. Popular beliefs offer proof of this. In the course of evolution, the humans have gained much, including speech, but have lost something at a certain stage of our evolution too. Bigfoot, who has not attained the capacity for speech, may be a creature parallel to Homo sapiens, our genetic companion, a member of the same order, but not above or below us, and by no means our ancestor. The mystery surrounding Bigfoot has led to many wild guesses expressed by people who have never seriously worked to investigate the phenomenon. The voices of psychics and parapsychologists are the loudest in this out-of-key chorus. Baikova was quite convinced that analogs of this earthly creature's properties should be sought on Earth, not in wild fantasies. This, Baikova said, is the only sensible approach to the subject. Bigfoot's ability to adapt to vastly different environments and its mysterious defense mechanisms make the creature extremely elusive. But in Baikova's assessment, the facts were amazingly simple. This creature can do everything that Homo sapiens ancestors and modern humans could do at the pre-verbal stage of their evolutions. These are the things humans strive to return to, and which we admire when we encounter signs of our evolutionary past in gifted individuals. Telepathic communication, the ability to find a lost person, extraordinary vision of situations that occur on the other side of the globe or inside the earth, and so on. Baikova stated that Bigfoot's behavior was of no less interest than its natural gifts. Eyewitnesses speak of encounters that lasted only seconds, a minute at the most. Bigfoot is never encountered face to face. And despite its ability to vanish in front of human eyes, Baikova feared that the species might be dying out. Humans' hunger for knowledge, accompanied by their complete loss of interest in the Earth itself and its inhabitants, leaves Bigfoot with poor chances for survival, said Baikova. She apparently was not aware of ecological defense movements in the West, which are now taking root in the East as well. But she went on to say that there are those in Russia who are impatient and tired of waiting for reliable data of the creature's real existence. They are ready to shoot the obstinate creature at the first opportunity, and so put an end to this mystery once and for all. Others believe that Bigfoot's corpse will somehow bring them the Nobel Prize. Bigfoot's powerful set of defense mechanisms offers it a natural advantage in the face of this adversity. Some Russian eyewitnesses say that it has the ability to influence people, filling them an unusual fear just short of complete paralysis. Baikova was convinced that this stemmed from a form of ancestral memory that binds humans' nocturnal fears to notions of Bigfoot. She found unequivocal proof of this assumption during the expedition she headed in 1992. It is interesting to note that during the same expedition, Baikova's guide, Maxim, discovered a dozen footprints, right and left feet, no less than one and a half meters apart. The tracks ran down the stony slope of a hill. The stony slope descended at an angle of 30 degrees. Only the foolhardy would attempt to go down. The tracks ran among shaggy fir trees, 
which grow close together in the taiga. Nights are pitch black here, especially between 3 and 4 a.m., more so when it is raining. Sometime later, more footprints with well-marked toes were seen not far off, an inch longer than a size 29 boot. Encounters with animals always occur on the lake inside the Arctic Circle, where Baikova often led her expedition. During one incident at this location, which occurred at the beginning of this century, a local Sami met the creature by a river that flows into the lake. Taking pity on the Bigfoot, he left it some food. Ever since that first encounter in the winter, the Sami looked after his dependent. When the Sami was dying, he asked his daughter to continue giving the hominid creature food. This is what Vaikova called an advanced contact. They are quite rare, but two such contacts are said to be taking place in Russia now. One is in the Ahangist region, the other near Vologda. Similar relations have been reported between Bigfoot and local people of the Caucasus region, where population density is higher than in the north. Local hunters have informed Baikova and her colleagues that all the big game have left the area. This exodus has been caused by geological prospecting and tourist routes, which pass right through the remote hidden settlements and sacred places of the Sami people. Russian researcher Alexei Sitnikov and his team of researchers reported a very strange encounter that took place in 1993 while on their way to Lake Tawny. Their plan was to determine the optimal time to conduct an expedition to search for proof of the possible habitation of a gigantic serpent in the region. There have been numerous reports about the existence of such a serpent in the far eastern part of Russia, in the Primorskaya taiga. The explorers had been planning to study the area for several years, but had been unable to do so because of a lack of resources and the wretched state of the Russian economy. In 1993, Sitnikov and his colleagues decided that, no matter what, the Lake Tawny area had to be explored. Too many disturbing reports were coming from the area to be ignored. The group of explorers had barely begun their trek when they had encountered a creature known to the locals as Snowman. They were crossing the river on a raft, and on the other bank of the river noticed a man who was covered with reddish fur. The explorers recall that they felt no fear. The creature turned around, made a sound resembling grunts, and then disappeared in the thicket. A few seconds later, the raft had reached the shore, and Sitnikov, with a colleague, chased the creature. Their fellow explorer, Sergei, guarded the raft. They did not find the creature and came back to the river. Sergei did find a barely visible footprint at the site where they first sighted the snowman. Sitnikov recalls that the creature was only three meters away when they saw it, and it was plainly visible. The weather was sunny and clear. The creature was about two meters in height. Its fur was of a dark hue and not thick. Its head was somewhat triangular in shape, widening towards its base. The base was straight, but from the forehead toward the crown, the head narrowed. The creature had small eyes, wide nostrils, and a slit in place of a mouth. The neck was not visible, and it looked as if the head was placed on wide shoulders. It possessed a powerful chest. Lake Tawny is full of mysterious, anomalous phenomena. Sitnikov had collected many descriptions of the snowman and has gathered statements from the local populace. 
including hunters who have encountered Bigfoot in the wilds. However, Russia has neither the financial means nor the will to explore the taiga in the current era of chaos and near anarchy. There are many areas in that part of the taiga concealed from human eyes for millennia. Secret settlements have been found deep in the thick woods. For centuries, reports about strange creatures and rituals have leaked from the taiga. The Russian snowman could be yet another creature hidden deep in the impenetrable forests. Valentin Septinov is a doctor of biological sciences who resides in St. Petersburg, Russia. For years, Dr. Septinov has conducted research on Bigfoot, and he has headed a number of important expeditions. Dr. Septinov reported the results of his expeditions in the summer of 1995 in Anomalia, a Russian newspaper dedicated to covering anomalous phenomena, issue 22 from 1995. He is one of the few courageous scientists who continue with this controversial research, although they themselves are on the edge of poverty. No funds are being allocated for any significant research, and Dr. Sepnitov is fearful for the future of Russian cryptobiology. Being a true scientist and patriot, Dr. Sepnitov cares for the ecological well-being of his country, yet he has noticed that science is being dreadfully neglected in today's Russia. And still, the scientists carry on their work, collecting data about the mysterious snowman. Ties that had been severed when the Soviet Union disintegrated are slowly being restored. Information is now coming into Petrograd, as its denizens like to call St. Petersburg, from the Baltic states and Central Asia. Some information has been exchanged with American researchers, too. The Caucasus Mountains have been cut off from research because of armed conflicts, but research in the Premier Altai Mountains, the Urals, and in the Russian Northwest goes on. In the summer of 1995, Dr. Sepnitov and his colleagues took part in an expedition of the Center for Ecological Safety. The area of operation was the Vyborsky region of the Karolsky Isthmus, a 90-mile-long isthmus in Karelia, northwest Russia, between the Gulf of Finland and Lake Ladoga. Dr. Sepnitov was also a participant in the exploration work of the Cryptobiologia Society in the Sortovelsky and Olenetsky regions of Karelia. The area is known for the absence of human inhabitants. Dr. Sepnitov has studied a number of reports of a huge being stalking the area. Russian military border guards have confirmed that they have tried to capture the mysterious creature, but to no avail. One sighting of a snowman took place July 30, 1995, at 11 a.m. Igor K., a technician from Petrograd, was walking in the forest near the Vascolio village. He recalls suddenly becoming very disoriented. Igor knew the area quite well, yet he kept walking in circles. A feeling came to him that a strange dusk had descended. Finally, Igor came to a clearing in the forest. He noticed a giant silver-furred man at a distance. The three-meter-high creature made a few steps towards Igor, but then disappeared behind trees. Dr. Sepnitov received this report late and was unable to personally investigate the area until September. Sergei Turkin, another Bigfoot researcher, came along. 
The ground where the sighting took place was dry and covered with grass. No interesting ground traces were detected. However, some dried-out trees nearby had a strange type of damage to their bark. A creature with thick, chisel-like nails had torn away the bark, up to a height of three meters. Whatever it was, it apparently had a taste for the larvae of the bark-eating insects. In June, Dr. Sepnatov had visited Riga, Latvia. He had been invited by his Latvian colleagues to help open a snowman exhibit in the Museum of Nature. Also during this visit, Dr. Sepnatov participated in the planning of an expedition to find the snowman in the Parmir Altai. The Altai Mountains are a mountain system in Central Asia, northwestern China, and West Mongolia. The highest peak there is 15,000 feet. The Pamirs are a mountain system mostly in Tajikistan. The highest Pamirs peak is 25,000 feet. The scientists had worked out a scheme to lure the snowman by using the sexual pheromones of female apes. A pheromone is any of various chemical substances secreted externally by certain animals that convey information to and produce specific responses in other individuals of the same species. Dr. Sepnatov was not able to join the expedition, but his Riga colleagues under the scientific leadership of M. Koryetskev, a biologist and criminologist, were able to explore the mountainous route. There, in the mountains of the Altai, the snowman approached the camp, growled, and breathed heavily on three consecutive nights, attracted by strong sexual secretions from female apes. Each time, it left its memorable footprints. The scientists had no trouble identifying them. The scientists tried to take pictures of the creature, having brought along a special camera for the job. But every time the creature appeared, these experienced, strong, and well-armed men were stricken with panic and terror. As hard as this may be to believe, Dr. Sepnatov himself has reported feeling such fear on many occasions while pursuing the elusive creature. Dr. Sepnatov has made many important findings about the snowman. The creature is an ecological antipode to Homo sapiens. It likes to visit those areas that have a lower anthropogenetic load. That is why the snowman has been sighted in forbidden closed-off areas, the borderlands, nature reserves, and similar places. For example, in the southern part of the Urai Mountains, a mountain system in Russia extending from the Arctic Ocean to the north border of Kazakhstan, traditionally regarded as the boundary between Europe and Asia, there have been many recent encounters with the snowman. This area was closed off for a long time because of radioactive pollution. Once the radiological toxicity had diminished, and the environment was healed to some extent by nature, the anthropogenetic pressure remained low, and the snowman seems to have made its way there. If same processes take place in Chernobyl, it is natural to suppose that the snowman may eventually appear there as well. The conclusion is... Areas where snowman encounters are most frequently reported tend to offer the creature an ecological advantage. It is interesting to note that the Russian sports industry has paid attention to the scientists' findings. The military-industrial complex has perked its ears up as well. 
The snowman embodies progressive biological solutions for the adaptation of humankind to its habitat. What humans get from material culture, the snowman has obtained in the course of biological progress. There has been profound research in Russia on the creature's movements, based on available photographs and films. And back in 1994, a Russian military college began studying the movements of the snowman, hoping to use the creature's survival techniques in military applications. One of the most interesting and relatively recent encounters took place in November of 1992. Anatoly Dobrenko, who lives in the village of Samoridovo, Dimitrov District, Moscow region, and works in a local children's sanatorium, was walking his Alsatian dog near his sanatorium. Suddenly, the dog bristled up and snarled angrily. Anatoly then saw a two-legged hairy monster about a hundred meters away. The creature was moving away toward the forest. The man says that he could make out rusty-colored matted hair on the creature's back from the distance. When Dobrenko's son, Igor, an army captain, learned about the encounter, he visited the area of the sighting, accompanied by some employees from the sanatorium. Igor found some well-preserved prints of huge bare feet in the mud that were nearly 50 centimeters long and 15 centimeters wide at the broadest part. The participants treated the prints like material evidence, covering them for better preservation. Later, Igor reported his findings to a newspaper, and the newspaper arranged a thorough examination of the location of the sighting. Local dwellers were interviewed, some of whom had seen signs of the unusual guest's presence before. The search party discovered the place where the creature had spent at least one night, the attic of an abandoned summer cottage. Not one, but two creatures seemed to have been there. The second set of tracks evidently belonged to a female. The feet were smaller. The investigation of this case has not ended. There have been interesting sightings in the Ahangest region as well. In autumn of 1989, Professor of Medicine Dr. N. Alutsky flew to the local taiga to gather some herbs. He was on the bank of a river when a bear cub came up to him and yelped. The professor heard the cub's mother roaring nearby. Dr. Alutsky had a knife with him, but felt it would be a poor defense against an angry beast. The doctor hastily abandoned his basket full of mushrooms and raced back to his boat. Suddenly, he heard a blood-chilling scream from behind. Turning his head, the doctor saw a gorilla-like creature holding the bear in its hands. The beast was two and a half meters tall, its body covered with thick brown fur. It was a female, and its large teeth were bared. Holding the bear by the hind legs, the creature tore the animal in two without any visible effort. The whole episode lasted just a few seconds. Dr. Alutsky told his bizarre story to two of his companions. They decided it would be wisest to forget the event and not tell anybody about it. Only after some time had passed did they decide to report the story. Luckily, the eyewitnesses had a sound biological background. But as more time passed, Dr. Alutsky couldn't help but begin to doubt the earthly existence of the creature he had sighted. Yet another sighting took place on January 24, 1992, in the village of Sosnino, six kilometers from the ancient Russian town of Kargopol. 
Two creatures covered with long, grisly hair encountered the barrack of an army unit engaged in road construction. One was enormously tall, about two and a half meters. The other was half that size. Circumstantial evidence suggests that the larger one was a female and the other one was its child. The baby jumped onto the soldier's night table while its mother stopped by the stove, waved its long arms, and gave a series of short cries in a very low voice. Then the strangers, who encountered neither understanding nor approval, ran away and hid in the forest. During this incident, the strange creatures were sighted by a dozen people. More soldiers had seen the creatures a short time before, in the morning, evening, and at night, but they did not believe their eyes. After the incident, some soldiers felt ill and went to consult the unit's doctor. One witness could not utter a word. His speech returned several days later. The strangers left behind some tufts of hair. They have not been identified so far. A drop of coagulated blood and large footprints. The footprints were 50 centimeters long, 15 centimeters wide, and 20 centimeters deep. The snow was knee-deep for humans. No record of the Russian studies of Bigfoot will be complete without mentioning Mikhail Sergeyevich Yeltsin, no relation to the president of Russia. Back in early 1980s, his underground report circulated in the USSR among researchers of anomalous phenomena. Yeltsin was a journalist and the deputy science chief of the Gizar 82 expedition. This expedition, which has studied the snowman phenomenon since 1974, was organized with the help of the Komsolinskaya Pravda newspaper. Since 1981, the Gisar expedition has explored the Pamir Mountains and Pravda has reported its findings. Even Moscow News newspaper published a large article about the snowman, titled Snowman in the Mountains of Tajikistan, November 15, 1981. The head of the Gisar expedition, Igor Frankovich Tsatsil, revealed the latest information his explorers had obtained. Yet another Soviet scientist, Professor B. F. Porshnev, had produced a monograph titled The Modern State of the Relict Hominid Issue. There were many people in the old USSR who were quite interested in the subject. Major publications, such as Technica Moledetsa, 1966-1969-1978, and Nueca e Religia, 1964-1968, as well as many newspapers and magazines, featured articles about the snowman. Many eyewitnesses said that near areas where these ape-like creatures were sighted, strange giant footprints, 50 to 60 centimeters, were often found. M. S. Yeltsin, in his account of the Gisar 83 expedition, mentions that other anomalous phenomena, UFOs and biophysical phenomena, were also detected in the Pamir Mountains. In 1994, my colleagues from the Yaroslavl UFO group, Yuri Alexandrovich Smirnov and others, took part in the Gizar 84 expedition. He had a mandate from the Leningrad Geographic Society of the USSR. In the Pamir Martins, the Yaroslavl researchers met with I.F. Totsil. He summarized for them his experiences and knowledge of the snowman. In his view, the snowman is an objective reality. 
Totsil had studied the creature for many years. He points out that ape-like creatures study humans, just as we study them. The snowman, according to Totsil, possesses a powerful biofield. It feeds on berries. Sometimes it attacks sheep, but it eats only their liver. The snowman does not eat much relative to its massive size. As a rule, the snowman leaves no traces of its death. In some cases, people have attempted to shoot the creature. These individuals reportedly died afterwards under mysterious circumstances. It is very difficult to catch a glimpse of this elusive hominid. Bigfoot hates bright lights. It is a nocturnal creature. It can hide under any stone. It sees very well at night, and it is very careful. Human beings can always sense when the ape-like creatures look at them. Sometimes, Bigfoot throws pebbles at humans as its way of being funny. However, should big stones be tossed, one had better leave immediately. As a rule, stones tossed by Bigfoot do not hit humans. It generally aims at other nearby targets, such as campfires. No one has ever been confronted by an aggressive snowman. Totsil believes Bigfoot knows all there is to know about humans. There have been reported cases of Bigfoot helping people who were in danger, and sometimes it warns humans of impending dangers. In 1982, a group of tourists camped at the Bolshoi Igizak Ravine, Tajzik SSR, were frightened away when stones began hitting their campfire. Seconds later, a landslide buried their camp, but the tourists managed to escape unharmed. M.S. Yeltsin resides in Bulgaria. The current whereabouts of I.F. Totsil are not known. I understand he has priceless archive of research papers, sketches, maps, and findings about Bigfoot. They have no funds to study Bigfoot, and there are currently no Gisar-type expeditions to explore the Altai Permir Mountains. Maya Baikova passed away in 1996. The Petrograd researchers remain the most active today, but their hands are tied by pauperization of their country. I have written much about the strange giants of the Caucasus Mountains and the mysterious giant underwater hominids of Siberia. The Caucasus area is now closed to us by warfare. As for Siberia, I have not received any reports from my colleagues there in two years. My friend and fellow researcher, publisher, author, and explorer, Alexander Rempel, who has collected much data on anomalous phenomena in the far east of Russia, including Bigfoot, has disappeared without a trace, like so many others have in that crumbling nation we call Russia. Huge societal changes have rocked Russia in its tortured economic and political transition. Let us hope the search for Bigfoot, Yeti, Snowman is not forgotten during this transition. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevening and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The Glenn Thomas Story I was supposed to be watching a cat skinner as he was fire trailing, but it was awful cold, and I walked a mile or so down the trail because he had no need of anyone at that time, and I thought I'd warm up and see the country. Up where he was, it was cold, and the east wind was blowing. A little further down, it was a west wind coming in. 
It was late fall, the last week in deer season, I think, in 1967. It was a mountain trail. They have several of them up there, footpaths, and four horses, too. The elevation was about between four and 5,000 feet. I came out lower down, into the fog, before I saw anything, and the fog was freezing on the trees because it was so cold, but if the wind would blow, the fog would break off and fall down, and, well, that made it kind of noisy. It sounded like walking. I came around a bend. Well, first I noticed some rocks that were turned over. All the other rocks were wet because of the fog, but these rocks were dry. Then I looked up about forty or fifty feet up on a ridge of rock, and I saw these animals there. Looked like human, or just about. Large male. The female wasn't so large, and a small baby. Well, not really small. It was moving with them. It was standing up, mostly. The two older ones were squatting down and, well, sort of bending as they picked up rocks and smelled them. They were kind of careful. They moved on for a few minutes, and then finally the male found possibly what he was looking for and dug real fast down into the rocks, which were large boulders, well, not, not the round type of rocks, but the flat, sharp kind. I could not explain why these rocks were there. There hadn't been a slide or anything. They were on top of the ridge, so they wouldn't have come down from anywhere. They are loose, quite a few holes underneath them, and they are as if they had been broken up. Definitely not the round river rock type, um, but they, the animals, would pick them up, and after they smelled them, they would lay them down on top of each other. They didn't just lay them back down where they picked them up. They stacked them up in piles. And when the male found what he was looking for, he really made the rocks fly. The big rocks weighed 50, 60, or even possible 100 pounds. He just jerked them out with his hand. He didn't seem to take any precautions for his safety. Later on I looked, and there was some rock that could have fallen on him, but he wasn't concerned. He brought out what appeared to be a grass nest, possibly some stored hay that small rodents had stored there. He dug through that and brought out the rodents. It seems... They ate them. The rodents appeared to be in hibernation or asleep or something. There were about six or eight rodents in the nest. The small animal, I noticed, only got to eat one, but the others got two or three apiece. But about that time they became aware of my presence and, well, just became alert. I was alongside of this trail that follows the ridge, I didn't remember getting there, but I was squatting down beside a small tree when I became aware of where I was. As soon as they realized I was there, they suddenly began to move, real quiet, behind some low-hanging limbs on a tree there. I didn't see them again after that. I tried to follow their tracks in the direction I thought they would have to go, but I couldn't find any, although there was frost there. But the next day I found two tracks, one heel print and the front part of the foot, the toes, but they were in a different direction, the direction from which I had come, and I never did get to connect them up with exactly which direction they had gone or know anything about them. The footprints, well, I would say 
There wasn't enough of, of the track to tell. Uh, there were possibly five inches wide. I, I don't know, at the widest point. I don't think they could have been six. I didn't know if it was one of the animals I had even seen that had made the footprints. I saw the toe print as it came out of the old landing. I saw the heel print as it went in. The heel print gave me the impression that the heel protruded. The tracks were in dirt. It was just as if you had a level piece and scooped it out for about two feet. And it would cave in or something. And the animal had stepped down into that and left a heel print. And as it stepped out on the other side, you could see the toe print. When I left the cat skinner, he was on Low Creek. But I had walked to Jim's Meadows, possibly a mile or more. I saw the footprints between where the cat skinner was and where I had seen the other animals. After the animals disappeared, I watched and looked for a few minutes and then decided I didn't want to go in that direction. So I just headed back. I didn't tell the cat skinner about seeing them. I didn't tell anybody about it until, well, Bob asked me to ask among my crews. Maybe some of them had seen them. That was the only time I had even mentioned it to any of the fellows out there because I didn't want anyone to think I was a nut or something or other. The only time I saw their faces was when they became alert. They gave me an impression of having a face a little like a cat without the ears. I couldn't remember seeing the ears. It seemed like the nose was much flatter. It didn't stick out like a man's. The, the upper lip was very short and seemed very thin. It, I couldn't remember that it had a chin like a human has. So, somehow or other, I felt that it was a face more like a cat than a human. The male was darker than the female, dirty, dirty brown, where the female was a buckskin or fawn-colored animal. The male had much longer hair on shoulder, head, and neck, and and hung in strings, like you see on an angora goat. He was much heavier in the shoulders than the female. From just above the hips, the, the male got larger. He had a very wide small of the back. From there on up, well, he just got bigger and bigger. Then, well, they had very rounded or stooped shoulders. The head was set lower on the shoulders than, a, than on a human. They don't seem to have the neck stand up as we do. Most of the time, they were not standing, but were squatting down, leaning forward to pick up the rocks. I didn't see them stand actually erect until the, m the moment they became alert that I was there. Uh, I didn't see them walk as such. The only movement I saw was when they made a quick, short dash to get behind the limbs of the trees. I saw them move all right, but in a humped-up, stooped-over position, just moving across the rocks. But they were upright when they made that quick dash at the end. It seemed to me that the mother picked up the baby in her lap and ran, holding the baby in front of her, possibly right below the breast, and well, her breast hung real low, much lower than on a human. I couldn't say how thick through the body these animals were, but they were very heavy-set, particularly thick and heavy at the small of the back, and then on up through the ribs. I think the male was over six feet tall, but I'm an awful poor judge of height and weight or anything. I didn't think the female was as tall as the male. 
In fact, I think she came possibly up to his shoulder. But I saw them standing up so little, I, well, I didn't know, but they were much larger than a human, much bulkier. The baby didn't come up to the mother's hips, actually. I don't think, but I don't remember for sure. The first time I saw them standing up was as the male stepped out of the hole that he dug with the grass, but it was only a very short while until they took off. I didn't, you know, I didn't see them after that. Question, how did they eat? Oh, they ate just by taking it in their hand and eating it as one of us would if we were eating a banana. They ate it, skin, feathers, and all, but just bit it in two. And as they would bite part of it, well, then just cram the other right on in. <laughs> the little one, though, he had a little more difficulty because he couldn't quite have enough room in his mouth for all of it, for the older ones did. It wasn't like a human would hand the food to the baby. He had to get his. He was scratching through the grass that, uh, that he had got, uh, got it himself, and the female did the same thing. That gave you the impression in that way of not taking care of the baby, like people would. I've been wondering now if that group lived together as a family, and I hope to go back and look into it deeper. Question. Did you form any impression of the proportions of, say, the legs in relation to the rest of the height? Would they be like a long-legged man or short-legged? Oh, I don't know. I couldn't say for sure. But the arms were such that when they squat down, they have to bend forward to pick up anything. Their arms are not long enough to reach. Uh, well, this one that was digging just seemed to go right on down. I didn't remember seeing him get up. But as he was down there, well, he was just digging and he kept on going down. And, well, at that time I couldn't exactly see where, where he was because I was down. And they were up a little bit on the side of the rock which kind of levels off some, and, well, he went down, and so I couldn't see exactly what he was doing down in there, but I did see when he came out. At that time, I was a little bit nervous, but I'm not sure now about half of it. It seemed like a bad dream for a while. I just couldn't believe it. It was really happening. I just couldn't believe, but it is. Question. Did you notice the hands at all? I noticed that it had hands. I did not notice if it had thumbs. I couldn't tell from the way it worked. It didn't seem to use the thumb, and I didn't see any ears. I didn't see any knees projecting when, when it squatted. They were in an awkward position because of the rocks, and they couldn't just squat down like we would on a floor. They would be on different levels and off too far to be comfortable. Well, that's as close as I can explain it. When they went from place to place, they would shift in position according to the terrain. The male, well, actually both of them, seemed to be moving in a certain direction, possibly from tracing the small rodents. I thought possibly it was the scent left by the rodents coming up through the rocks, because it was not a runway that they would have been picking through, because they were just picking up the rocks any place, and as they picked it up, they'd turn it over and smell it, and then they'd lay it on the stack. They left it very different, definitely in a pile. 
They would leave anywhere from three to fifteen or twenty in one pile as they would reach back, and then, oh, six to eight feet farther, they'd leave another pile, starting laying them to, together and in another pile. With Renee and my daughter Catherine and son Jim, I went with this man last July to the spot where he had seen the three creatures. We found the piles of rocks to which he referred, not only at the spot he showed us, but on almost every other area of broken rock we found in two hours of scrambling around on the mountain. There were obviously piles manufactured by something or someone. The rock could not have just rested that way naturally. And there were dozens of them. The hole he saw the male Sasquatch dig was about five feet deep and almost as steep-sided as a well. No bear or anything else without hands could have lifted out the rocks. A man could undoubtedly figure out a way to do it if he had any reason to take the trouble. But in this case, the story had only come out as a result of an inquiry from someone else who had seen footprints in the snow in January of this year, and there was no reason to expect that anyone would be coming out to look over the site. This ends the story. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed those two stories. Before we get going, I wanted to mention that we, you know, we had been looking for a new person to read stories, and Tom found one. So we'll have uh, some new material here fairly soon. I just wanted to mention that so people will uh, be looking for that. So, Tom, why don't you go ahead and kick off your uh, your thoughts on the Russian snowman? Yes, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so this was. Uh, the, the first part of the story was there was a Russian scientist in the 70s. And, and I just find it interesting that, you know, we've got ours over here and they have theirs over there. And they also took an interest in it. So they had enough uh, sightings and encounters to it warranted an investigation. So a scientist named Mika uh, Bikova um went in and she, she did a lot of research. She actually wrote, I think, three or four books on this. And and she noted that that there's a lot of different uh, witness uh, accounts, you know, that basically trying to piece together the Bigfoot behavior and the characteristics was essentially assembling a jigsaw puzzle of all the different witness accounts, similar to, you know, what we have encountered over here. And... People were, um, the thing behaves differently than expected. It's very fast and it just poof, it disappears. It doesn't actually disappear, but you know, they, they, they can make themselves very scarce in a very short amount of time. So over there in Russia, there, I guess the whole thing came up of interdimensional and UFOs. <clears throat> and she did a thorough investigation on this. And she came to the conclusion, unfortunately, for people that like that stuff, and I find it interesting, but it's of earthly origin. Nothing supernatural or paranormal going on to these things. They just, you know, they're fast and they're very, very adept at uh, utilizing their environment and concealing themselves. So I've, I found that kind of interesting. That's what, you know, we, we run into the same thing over here. You know, it's interesting, Tom. The original thinking here 
among the you know the original pioneers of the subject was that they were you know solitary shy and and i think a lot of people had the impression they were just big lumbering apes and that's not the case at all it's exactly like what you mentioned the russian scientist came to the conclusion of yeah exactly and and there is you know these are just suppositions that are made by people that you know they're they're just trying to figure out what it is they've seen and i go back to the the one that i saw in august a couple years ago and it's the same thing Uh, the only way i could describe it was it moved so fast that the movement was almost as if it was over with before it started nothing paranormal I'm sorry we didn't see any UFOs, no evidence of interdimensionality, um, just a creature that is very, very quick. Yeah, I think that stuns people when they see something move that quickly. And, you know, there are plenty of animals that move fast like that. It's just, um, it's a natural thing, you know, especially something, well, it doesn't even have to be a predator. I mean, prey animals can move very quickly also. It's part of the survival mechanism out there. Um, anything else on that one you want to mention? Well, just one other thing is uh, they attempted some scientists, I think these guys were from uh, Latvia, were attempting to lure a Bigfoot with uh, pheromones. And they may have had some success, I don't know. Um, I've always felt that the creature is a little too smart, a little too intelligent to... Uh, fall for being lured in but who knows you know maybe they did have some success i I used to get the biggest laugh out of renee de hinden he'd always tell the story about and this was sort of sort of after the falling out that green and de hinden had but de hinden talked about this and he would get tears in his eyes laughing about this when he get going on it but it was there was you know they had the idea that if they went to um used uh used um women's hygiene products you know women are menstruating they use their um uh, you know the pads or whatever right i can't remember exactly right, right. what they i was trying to go get the wording that they used but you know, it's close enough you get the idea and and renee would say and he started laughing he says can you picture these these two green and, and bob titmus skulking around you know a gas station women's bathroom you know one of them looking out and the other one going in and grabbing the the items <laughs> you know they, they were going to go out and hang them in trees and try to lure us afterwards <laughs> but he would get the uh, biggest laugh out of that um i don't think we're going to ever do that i a matter of fact i know i'm not <laughs> no that's not something i think i'd want to attempt either <laughs> and that isn't that far from what these scientists were attempting to do they were actually using pheromones but uh, you know Okay, so, um, again, I think it just goes back to if you want to encounter the creatures, you just got to do three things. Number one, you got to go to where they are. Number two, to do that, you got to know where they are. And number three, uh, I think you need to be a little bit provoking because you're not going to, I don't think you're going to have much luck luring them out or enticing them. Right, right. And, you know, it's interesting. the ideas were similar to what the ideas here were around that same time period. And there was some cross-pollination between, you know, the Canadian Bigfoot hunters and, and the Russian folks. So, you know, there were, there were some sharing of ideas. So let's move on to the Glenn Thomas story. And 
this is a real gem because in in all of the stories now there's some people that have done over the years they've done for television or films they've done reenactments and things like that and they've gone to the locations where something was reported to have happened but you know you really going to a location where something has happened and i've been to many places where you know witnesses taken me out and showed me where things happened but you don't really it's it's sort of uh, anticlimactic because you're there you're looking at some trees and you think well okay whatever <laughs> you know what i mean it's uh, it's not like you're going to see something with the Glenn Thomas story, it's one of the rare cases where, and as he, you know, he talked about, he was a logger, 1967, coincidentally the same year that Patterson got his film, uh, and it was also in the fall, I believe. So he was, you know, as the story read, he was out wandering around waiting to do his job with the cat skitter, and uh, heard some noise, and he sees these three creatures, you know, two adults, male, female, and a and a juvenile and they're going along and they're turning rocks over and then they're stacking the rocks and at one point in the story the male uh, leaps onto this spot and starts pulling these big rocks these small boulders out you know with no apparent care for its own safety and then at some point pulls up a, a lump of grass with some rodents in it they divide the rodents up and then apparently they discover his presence and then they leave quickly um and something else also before i go on they talked about you know the female sasquatch always keeping the juvenile keeping her body between the juvenile and the male and that's something we talked about last week and with uh forest and for those who don't know forest is a degreed anthropologist so she does know what she's talking about um she talked about how that's you know that's very primate behavior especially if the male was not the father of the of the juvenile. So, uh, but going back to what's there. So, the creatures were stacking these rocks. One of them dug a hole, fairly large hole apparently, and then they left. Well, I read this in John Green's book, and <clears throat> sometime I, I don't remember what year it was. It was in you know sometime mid or a little bit later eighties. Uh, Rene DeHinden used to come and visit me periodically and on one of these trips he called and said hey let's meet in Estacada so Carlos Bozito my friend and I met with him and we had breakfast and we spent the day with him and towards the end of the day when he had to leave I asked him I said hey do you know the story of these rock stacks are in John Green's book and he says oh yeah yeah I said I know it's not far from here I said well can you show us where it's at I'd like to see it he says, yeah, sure, follow me. He says, I, I can't go there. I, I have I have to be someplace else, but, you know, I'll take you up and, and point the direction where they are. So we did that, and we got up there kind of late in the day, so uh, it was right before dark, so Carlo and I, you know, Ray showed us the spot. He says, yeah, you just go over that direction, and, and, and you'll find him. So, and then he drove off, and uh, so it was too late to actually see anything, so Carlo and I went back the next day, early in the day, and sure enough, here were, and I can't remember how many there were at that site, uh, of these rocks, these large rocks, stacked up. And the hole that the creature dug was still there. So it was one of those rare things, rare situations where you have the story, had the witness, and you were able to go back. And, and this was probably 20 years later. Uh, and these artifacts were still there to see. 
you know, unlike going to a, a story where, you know, the creature walked across the pasture and, and it was gone. There was nothing else to see. But in this location, you could actually find these things. And I photographed them and, and uh, actually did quite a bit of uh, documentation that had never been done before. And uh, so anyway, it was to me, that was very interesting. Yeah, and Will, you have pictures of yourself standing next to it uh, and the hole that was dug and in is, the hole it's enormous i mean you could have climbed in it like a like a little cave or something I, I did it's actually it measures right around six feet deep and almost that wide across and it, and those rocks were enormous they were big and pictures are actually in a couple of my books um you know they're so interesting i, I had to use them so i they're in my book bigfoot evidence and i think i put them in notes from the field too but so if anybody's interested, you know, they're they're in those books. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a rare thing when you, you get a story like that, it's reported, and you're actually able to go there and see those things, see the behavior that was done. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like a preserved monument almost. Yeah, I don't know if they're still there or not. I mean, I'm sure weather is taking us to it gets a lot of snow up in that area and it's pretty high high up so uh so that's that folks i mean um i don't know if we have anything else to talk about tom or we just wrap it up and folks i hope you enjoyed the segment yeah absolutely i think we're ready to wrap and uh, again I, I did forget to mention if you guys really like the show and you want to support us you can always do that we we have a patreon link in the description and it's always much appreciated and you can get you can support us for as little as a dollar a month so uh anything helps yeah much appreciated and we'd absolutely love to people you know to contact us if you've had a sighting and are willing to talk to us on the show you know by all means get in touch with us and you want to tell them where to contact us tom yeah uh, questions at creekdevil.com all right well that's a wrap for this midweek show folks stay tuned for the weekend show Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there. <laughs>